0: something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Growing food on your balcony, patio, or in a small yard is fun and simple. Follow a few easy steps and many healthy good eats are in your future. This is episode 51, Growing Vegetables and Herbs in Containers with Amanda Bennett. Amanda is the Vice President of Horticulture and Collections at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. She oversees the development and enhancement of the garden's prestigious indoor and outdoor collections managed by 33 professional horticulturalists. Since 2005, she has participated in many of the garden's design and construction projects. The garden's recurring art installations and special exhibits are horticulturally enhanced as her team develops many of the garden's special projects. Amanda oversees the landscape design and continuing execution of the master plan for the 30-acre garden, as well as the displays in the Fuqua Conservatory and Orchid Center. Amanda is often cited in local and national publications, featured on local and national radio and TV. She also has written for publications such as the Cactus and Succulent Journal and cited in Mother Earth News. Amanda earned a University of Georgia bachelor's degree in horticulture and completed an internship at Chicago Botanic Garden before joining the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Our talk with Amanda Bennett after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Amanda, why is there such an interest in people wanting to grow their own food?
1: Vegetable gardening, victory gardening has kind of ebbed and flowed for as long as there's been industrialization. In the past 10 or so years, people have really started focusing on where their food comes from. Really understanding the globalization of food to some extent, but really wanting to know what it is they're eating and where it's coming from. And I think that's really become even more true since the pandemic in 2020. Gardening really saw a huge spike of interest with the pandemic and even bigger surge of people wanting to grow their own food for all the same reasons. But I think people being at home and having a little bit more time on their hands and really thinking about their life a little bit more, I think got even more people interested in it.
0: Some people just don't have the space they need to grow what we would think of as a traditional vegetable garden. What are some of the solutions to the space challenge?
1: Absolutely. I tell people and they say, oh, I don't have the space for plants. I'm like, you just haven't met the right plant yet. There is now, especially with all the fantastic breeding going on in the edible world, there is a plant for you for sure. Whether you have a very small yard or you don't have a yard at all and you only have a patio, you can do just a small space in your yard or incorporate it into existing beds. Or you can even just have containers on your back patio.
0: Containers. Let's talk about that. How do you determine what type of container to use? The
1: thing that I like to tell people is that your success of container gardening has just as much to do with your container and your soil as it does your plants. Size is the big thing. The bigger, the better. Everybody loves the pictures of all the Mediterranean gardens with individual little plants and individual little terracotta pots, and I don't want to meet the person who has to water that on a daily basis. The bigger, the better. For your input and the care, it becomes easier. It's a little counterintuitive that the larger pot size, the easier the care gets, but it really is true. Choosing a bigger container size, especially for veggies, if you wanted to do root crops like carrots or like that, that becomes especially important. But also you got to think about the plant success comes in the root system as well. So having enough planting volume there is really critical for the success. What type of material? I get asked that a lot. Well, is one type of material better than another? The quick and dirty answer is no, as long as you have good drainage. That is the key to it. And knowing where your site is, if you have a very, very small deck, understanding that you're going to have some drainage coming out of that. So there's going to be some water some puddling and how do you handle that? Or a wood deck that can kind of become a little bit slippery. Containers are really easy. in My opinion, a little bit less care than something in ground. You can still get a lot of production out of them.
0: What is one of the more creative containers that you've seen?
1: Oh gosh, many years ago, I wondered why don't people use those big cattle watering troughs for containers? And they have definitely started doing that now if you like a little bit more urban of a look. But gosh, you can use almost anything for a container as long as you can get drainage holes in it. You don't have to be fancy. If you have some old buckets hanging around, you can drill holes in those. You can paint them if you want. Pretty much anything that will hold a good volume of soil and provide drainage can be used as a container. Let's just
0: say you have a balcony on your townhouse or apartment and that's all the space you have to grow. Is there a way to multiply that space?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you can do containers, especially for people who only have a balcony window boxes or kind of those railing boxes are an awesome way to utilize your space. Also in containers, don't be afraid of adding trellises to be able to go up any of those ways of maximizing space is going to help you grow more and to produce more. And then even within that, there's little tricks because if you have full sun, grow a bean up a trellis, well, you can still grow lettuce kind of under it, tucked into the shade and extend your lettuce season.
0: What do we need to look at when we're getting the soil to put in those containers?
1: Especially if you are in a high rise or something like that, being able to get the soil to where you live is going to be a little bit tricky, but they have some great products out now that are bagged where you can bring them in one at a time. Some of the soils that are out now are a little bit heavy. I would lean into some of the better brands of products. They tend to have a little bit better drainage. It's fine if you want to use one of products now that have the moisture holding capacity and you know you're not going to be able to water every single day or something like that. Some of those are really good. I caution people with those because you need to know your watering habits. So if you know that you're not a person who's going to water every day or every other day, those products with the moisture holding capacity are really good, but if you are a person that tend to water houseplants or whatever I have right now pretty regularly, you may want to think about that product because it definitely is designed to hold moisture for the gardeners who do not water regularly. If you are not that person, you may want to opt just for a basic product that does not have the moisture holding capacity in it. Better products tend to have a little bit better drainage in them, and that's your real key to success is you don't want anything rotting out.
0: I know I've seen bags that are labeled as garden soil or topsoil. Are those good soils to use in containers?
1: To me, they are not. They are too heavy for containers. If you see anything other than potting soil, you're going to want to pretty specifically stick with something that is called a potting soil. Top soils and compost mixes or something like that are really heavy and meant for in-ground amendments to existing soils. I do see people use them in containers. To me, they're very heavy and the plants tend to struggle and need more input to be able to grow appropriately.
0: What other questions should I ask you about containers?
1: I get asked a lot well, if I have containers out on my balcony, how should I water them? Or how much water is too much water? Or how much water is too little water? So I'll start with how to water them question. That kind of depends on where you live. Some people have an outdoor spigot access on their patio, and that would be the easiest by far to buy a small sized hose. I won't deny that I have watered many a thing with my thumb over the end of a hose. But buying something that kind of has a rain head on it is much better for the plants and the soil both. Or if you don't have that type of setup where you can cook in a hose directly, then buying a watering can that has the rain type of head on it. I prefer the ones that you can take off and on because a lot of times, no matter what you do, something is going to get stuck in it. Being able to take it off and clean the little holes out is going to be better. And then how much water is too much water or too little water? Any type of gardening, you're going to have to pay attention to the watering. And the more you garden, the more you know the look of plants and when they need it or when they don't. Vegetables in general are very high water things. You know, you think about a tomato, it's very juicy, a lot of water. You think about squash, it has a lot of water when you cut it. So all of these things take a good bit of water input going into them. When you water, you want to water fairly slowly. You don't want to just kind of douse it down in 10 seconds and be done with it. Because if you were to stick your finger into that soil, you would be shocked at how little, very surface wet it is. But further down, it is not that wet. So you want to be able to go over it a few times. And when you stick your finger in, you really want to feel it be moist up to at least that first knuckle. Depending on the size of your container, you're doing some of those really big agricultural tubs. You have the luxury of a large patio and you're able to do something like that. You're not going to get drainage out of the bottom of those every single time, but definitely in your first watering, you're going to want to get drainage coming out of the bottom of it. And when you're filling it with soil, you can put in a layer and then wet it down too. That actually helps when you're filling up really large containers. Now, if you're using some large size pot that you were able to purchase, say it's just a couple of feet across, then yes, you're going to want to see some water coming out of the bottom of it every time you water. But to check the watering in between, you're going to want to stick your finger in it and feel if it's still moist up to that first knuckle, you're probably pretty good. If it feels dry, the soil looks dry, then you're going to want to water it. Obviously, if your plants are wilting and the soil looks dry, stick your finger in because that can be tricky. Plants that have been overwatered wilt and plants that are underwater wilt. So it's all about what does your soil feel like? Does your soil feel wet when you stick your finger in? Is it dry? Is it wet? Being able to really feel what that soil is doing is your key to success. You want as much sun as you can get for people who have six hours or more of sunlight, vegetables and herbs and things like that are going to do really, really well for you. If you have less than that, you have a little bit smaller selection for sure. How much sun you get impacts how much watering you'll need to do as well.
0: What about splashing soil back up on the plant when you're watering? Is that a good idea?
1: Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I'm always amused to see people doing such a great job at watering foliage. While the plants appreciate it to some degree, really their water absorption comes from their roots. So you want to get that watering head, wherever the water is coming from, down at the root level. One, to water in the roots, which is really where the water absorption is happening. Two, you don't want a lot of dirt splash back from the watering because even if you're buying potting media, which is supposedly sterilized open air, you're going to have pests come in and a lot of stuff comes in the soil and having that splashback really ups how much pests or issues you're going to see and it also just makes it harder to wash everything when at the end of the day when you're harvesting it, you don't have as much soil splashback. It's just not as difficult to get it clean to eat it.
0: I know so many homes today, outdoor spaces in the yards and all, we're very limited in those spaces. What are some good strategies for small yards to grow vegetables?
1: Small yard growing You don't have some of the challenges as people who live in a more urban environment. So getting soil or getting materials to your site might be a little bit easier, but you still may not just have a lot of space to deal with. I think in some respects, you're in a similar situation. Really, in a yard, you want a good proximity to your home because you're growing it to be able to eat with. Do you have a back deck or a back patio or some outdoor beds? I think a lot of people are afraid to mix in edible plants into existing existing plantings that they have herbs in particular mix really well into existing plantings that's an easy way to do that where do you have some space even a small amount of space close in proximity where it's not out of the way to go harvest because your convenience and your time is a big factor in this as well so what's easy for you to get to large enough to be able to plant some things and do you want to go through the time and expense of building a raised bed Would you rather do containers or rather either cannibalize or mix it into beds that already exist around your home?
0: So you're talking about just planting edibles in with your shrubs?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Rosemary, especially in the south, is a perfectly hardy perennial for a number of years. There's several things that will live for a few years. And even if they don't, even if you just really love basil or I was going to say oregano, but oregano is hardy here, too. There's lots of stuff. Cilantro will reseed itself or you can just grow it as a seasonal, even seasonal plants, herbs or vegetables can be used in place of, say, an annual bed. If you have an annual bed kind of close to your back patio or back pool or something like that, switching that out for vegetables. If you know anything about vegetable plants, it's maybe a vision of them not looking the best in the world. I would strongly take issue with that and disagree with that. I think there's some really pretty ones out there and it can be really well done and taking the place of a seasonal container or seasonal bed. Do
0: you give us some examples of that?
1: Oh, sure. A lot of people, especially if you have kids, but even not if you have kids, a lot of people kind of like doing those themed type beds which I can't argue with. The pizza one was maybe the most popular and you know the most kid oriented, but you can really easily plant tomato plants with basil, some oregano and other type parsley and things all in the same bed together. You kind of have your whole thing for a pizza right there together, or if you're particularly inclined to cocktails growing in a pot, some mint with some pineapple sage. There's some really beautiful combos that you can put together. I keep circling around the basil, especially in the summer. Basil is really pretty. There's some really nice ones. The Thai basil with the really large leaves are really popular in cooking. You can theme the beds kind of based on what you like. If you like eggplant Parmesan, then you can plant eggplants and tomatoes and herbs together. Kind of be creative and what you like to eat. And that's another thing for people with both patios and back spaces when they're thinking about gardening in general, but especially edible gardening. What do you like? What do you like to eat? What makes you happy? Or what do you use a lot? What do you tend to find that you're buying at the grocery store? Because vegetables and herbs can be a bit pricey. It's a lot more economical to be able to walk out your door and get what you want rather than having to run to the grocery store every time.
0: It's fun too.
1: And it's super fun. I know. I walk out my door. I have an herb pot. I do grow cilantro in my garden, but I have an herb pot right outside my door where I have thyme, oregano, cilantro, and rosemary in it because those are the ones that I use quite a bit when I cook. Just
0: makes it easy. That's a good strategy for maximizing your production, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think people would be surprised how much yield you can get out of a relatively small space. You plant a couple of squash plants and you will have enough for yourself for sure. And probably a handful of neighbors for most of the summer till you get tired of it. Like I did when I planted zucchini this past year, I just got tired of harvesting zucchini. Doesn't everybody? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me and everybody I knew were enjoying zucchini for a long time. It's just one of those fun things. If you do have too much, go out and meet neighbors, give some away. And that's the fun part about gardening to me. You talk about the pass long and the heirloom kind of giveaway plants and the perennial realm, vegetables are just as good for making friends as any other type of plant. You definitely can get a lot of yield out of a small space. You can harvest lettuce for a good bit of time. And then, like I mentioned before, if you have a container, well, grow something that goes up a trellis, but also use that shade and the heat of summer to continue growing your lettuce. And you can keep reseeding, stuff like that. You can really get a lot of produce out of a relatively small space, especially if it's something you like. And herbs are a great example of that.
0: Is that an example of secession? planting or is that something else?
1: Yeah, that would be succession planting. Uh, Lettuce is probably the most popular one for succession planting or radishes, some things that don't take very long to come to maturation, but you can do it with some other stuff too. Vegetables do kind of, especially as the heat of summer moves on, start to look a little bit unsightly or unkempt. If you have a tomato and you've harvested several off of it and it's just kind of starting to look a little bit bedraggled, well, maybe you should just go ahead and take it out and put a new one in because you're going to continue to get harvest through fall if you're planting a second round of stuff. Lettuce is a big one. Cilantro, you can also continuously crop cilantro. I love cilantro in the South because you can grow it in the summer or the winter if you continuously seed it. Lettuce is in the shade, like we've already mentioned. Squash is another one. The plants themselves get too large for your space. Well, tear them out and start them again, and you can have a second round of them in the South.
0: What about square foot gardening? How does that work into all this?
1: Yeah, so square foot gardening, probably, I don't know, I lose track of time, but 15, maybe 20 years ago, square foot gardening was a big thing and still is a big thing, especially if you're trying to maximize your space. How much, production you can get out of a square foot looking at a garden literally like one little square foot how many of those little square feet do you have and and what you can fit in that and I think you'd be really surprised because you also don't have to separate your peas and carrots I like to kind of say it that way if you have a row of lettuce you can put in another row of radishes right beside it and another row of lettuce and another row of radishes you can really maximize what you can get out of one little square foot of space like we've been talking about grow beans up a trellis and you grow cilantro or lettuce or bush beans or squash or something down below it. You don't have to just grow one plant at a time in one space what are those things you can combine together to maximize your space to be able to produce the most possible?
0: If we're looking at maximizing the most production in the smallest amount of space, I know soil, we've already talked about it in containers, but how do we need to think about soil in the ground? You
1: kind of have to decide, do you want to build raised beds or do you kind of want to use bed space that you may already have available? So we'll talk about building raised beds first. There's tons and tons and tons of plans out there for raised beds. What I would say is look at your lifestyle and look at, do you want them a little higher up so that you don't have to bend over as far or down a little bit closer to ground level? Okay with you. Either way you do it. Really the golden rule of raised beds is that if you reach your hand across from any side, you're able to reach the middle. Because if you're not able to reach the middle, how are you going to harvest whatever it is in the middle? Typically, they're about four-ish feet wide because most people can reach about two-ish feet in um, to harvest and weed and take care of it and stuff like that. Thinking about your materials and how much you want to spend, they can be built out of any number of things to get off the ground. Now, the reason you would build a raised bed for a lot of people, it's easier to weed. If you build it in a lawn area, you can still mow the grass around it, kind of keep it nice and pretty. You can mulch around it and still have your production space kind of contained it just makes it easier for a lot of people to be able to care for and contain that type of gardening. If you're using the raised beds or building the raised beds, you are going to want to haul some soil in. And we've mentioned topsoil products or compost products. And this would be a good place to do that. But I would say when you're building your raised beds, the ground beneath it kind of needs to be broken up because you still need good drainage. You don't have a container with drain holes in it, but you do need the water to be able to penetrate down into the ground. Below it, I would still say really watch the product that you're using. If it's super heavy and kind of gloppy, when you put it out, it just kind of settles into this like mud pie type of layer. It's too heavy. Your roots are not going to want that. Roots need air and water movement to be able to grow. So, using good quality products. But this would be a spot because it's larger with a more even surface area for that drainage. The topsoil products and the compost products are more appropriate for raised beds. If you're utilizing bed space that you already have, say you are planting it between shrubs. You have a shrub bed that you just kind of want to tuck some stuff into. I'd look at how good that soil is, kind of if you pull the mulch back and that soil seems nice and you can kind of pick it up and work your hands in it, then I'd say you're doing pretty all right. I always say getting a a soil test from your local extension service is never a bad idea, kind of give you a line on what you have. Also, I don't think it ever hurts to add a layer of compost to pretty much anything. Compost is one of the best things you can do for your garden and your plants hands down. If you're using an annual bed, say you're not going to plant flowers, you'd rather plant vegetables there, compost adds a lot of nutrients and good microbes and things like that to the space to kind of refresh the soil matrix that's there before you plant those vegetable plants there.
0: Yeah, I would think you want it well drained also, just like a container.
1: Absolutely. Drainage is the key to planting life all the way around.
0: What do you think holds people back from trying to grow their own food?
1: I think one, people think, oh, I don't have the space. Or two, vegetables are hard or fussy or complicated, or I don't have the knowledge base for that. I think they just are a little intimidated or think it's too hard. And I think all of that is surmountable. Just trying and figuring out how easy it is. There's tips and there's ways to learn about any of that. Definitely, if it's something that you like and something you like eating, then I would say go for it you have the space, you can make the space or you can make the time, it really adds a whole other dimension to when you're able to eat something that you've produced. Inviting people over to have a salad that you picked the lettuce earlier that day and you will also notice how different the food tastes. To me, that is absolutely the reason to grow your own food is that the taste is so much better. When you buy things in the grocery store, they have had to harvest it a bit early for the true flavors to be able to develop so that they can ship it. No matter how close it is, I can guarantee you it is not picked and shipped to that store the same day. Like it would be if you were able to walk out your front door or back door, pick it and prepare it the same day. It has such a different flavor profile.
0: Oh, yeah. Very good stuff. A lot better. So you don't have to be a pro to do this then.
1: (laughs) Oh, no. I think, you know, people let plants intimidate them in general. I have people all the time. It's like, oh, I have a black thumb. I can't do this. I'm like, you just haven't met the right plant yet. <laughs> Vegetable gardening is not that difficult. They're not as fussy and they're not as hard as, as they have a reputation for being. They need different things. If you're going to plant a tomato, well, you might want to know if it's a indeterminate or a determinate. That one I would say is maybe like a level two or three type of vegetable to dive into as tomatoes. The really easy ones, you know, the greens in the winter and the spring greens with the lettuces and squash in the summer, there's some that are just so easy to get out of the gate with. And all they require is good soil, good drainage, regular water, and a little bit of fertilizer. And you're ready to roll if you have the space.
0: We're looking at the end of March, 1st of April here as we're recording. And I know people are thinking about vegetable gardens or maybe doing it for the first time. What is the essentials to get started on any site?
1: No matter if you're looking at pots or you're looking at in bed or things like that, knowing what your season is. For some of us here in Atlanta, our frost date is April 15th. That's not true for everyone. So kind of knowing in mind what your frost date is, but also knowing what vegetables and herbs do well in the different seasons. Different parts of the country can grow things differently. In Alaska, they can still grow cabbage in the middle of summer, whereas, you know, here in Atlanta, we could never do that. Knowing if it's a cool growing crop or a warm growing crop is your first place to start. What do you like to eat. And then kind of a next step is, do you want to grow things from seed or do you just want to go out and buy your plants? You can do either. There's an expense either way. It's a little bit cheaper to do things from seed. Some people just don't want to have that wait time. They want to run out. They want to be able to plant their plants and see that, get them settled in and growing from a plant stage instead of growing them from seed, which is totally fine. It's a preference point. And how much time do you really want to spend on it?
0: Of course, sunlight's important. What would be the minimum amount of sun? I think we've always talked a little bit about that.
1: I generally say six hours or more. I think if you're under six hours, you really need to stop and think about what would do well with you in a low light situation. And, you know, there's a handful of things, not a ton, but a handful that would do well with a lower light situation. If you have six hours or more of sunlight, you can grow almost any vegetable or herb you would want to.
0: What does it take to make a happy garden?
1: (laughs) A happy gardener. (laughs) If you're really interested in it and you really want to do it, you're going to take that interest in it. You're going to look into it and really want to succeed. Planting from seeds, I would say the seed packet is the first place to start for some great information. As much as I love the internet, there is some really bad gardening advice out there. So don't just look at one source, look at a really, really trusted source. Rodale Gardening has been out there forever, looking into some really trusted sources for the information to get your feet wet and to learn how to do it. But if you have a a thirst for it and you really want to do it, I think that's really what it takes to be successful. You'll figure it out and you'll find a way to make it work. And then I think seeing the literal fruits of your labor is just going to make it that much better and get you that much more excited.
0: Coming up, more with Amanda. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com best question at gardenquestion.com Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. When I take seed from seed packet and I plant it, just end up with things seems like an overwhelming amount of seed no matter how few I put down. How do you handle that?
1: Yeah, so thinning of seeds is one of those things I talk to people about because they're like, I just don't want to throw away the seedlings. And I'm like, well, you don't have to. Take carrots, for example. If you're going to seed carrots, you can almost do all of this with a pencil, believe it or not. So you draw your little line with a pencil and you sprinkle your seed in and you kind of lightly cover it up when those seedlings come up and they're maybe an inch inch and a half out of the ground that's the time to start thinning them because you want an individual carrot to have the space to develop into an actual carrot when you're seeding them skip a few rows beside it before seeding anything else because when you're transplanting you can draw another little line make a little hole with your pencil and as you're lightly thinning those seeds just transplant them into some of those little holes that you've made with the pencils and you have three rows of carrots, whereas you started out maybe just seeding one row of carrots.
0: That's a good strategy. I hadn't thought about that.
1: (laughs) All the little tips and tricks you learn from people (laughs) who hate throwing away plants. Yeah, yeah.
0: On vegetables and herbs per season, I don't expect you to name them all, but could we go through maybe some possibilities of what we would want to start out with and then summer crop, maybe a fall, and if we can grow vegetables in the winter, can you just give us a a couple examples what we can think of on those?
1: Absolutely. We are technically zone 8A. 7B is what we used to be in 8A. We're somewhere around in that neighborhood. You can definitely have three or four distinct seasons of vegetables. Right now, we're in the March timeframe. So, this is lettuce central for sure. Lettuces and peas, snow peas, sweet peas, radishes, radicchio, those great things you think about coming in spring salads. Now is the time to do it. Strawberries, I will say, that's a little bit more on the perennial side of things. Those should have been planted a little bit ago to be able to get some fruiting happening now, but you can keep that in mind for next time. Think about salads when you think about what's for spring. I'll mention herbs. Cilantro is a great one that grows in the wintertime. Oregano still grows in the wintertime. Here in Atlanta, you can double crop again. If you have a quick growing like broccoli or something like that, you can do it this time of year as well. Moving into summer, everybody thinks about tomatoes. Uh, My daughter is a huge fan of cherry tomatoes. So we always have cherry tomatoes at our house, slicing tomatoes, Roman tomatoes, you know, you name it. There's a million different tomatoes out there. Washes are a huge one. Cucumbers are really easy. To me, cucumbers are one of those great vining crops. You put it on trellis, you get tons of cucumbers off of it for a little while, and then you rip the really ugly vine down and you plant another seed. You start it again and you can kind of have the new generation of cucumbers all summer long. Peppers, love all kinds of peppers beans don't be afraid of beans either so there are some that are running beans so you have to have a trellis for them and then there are some bush beans do you want to snap beans do you just want green beans or do you want the shelling beans again there's a bean out there for you no matter what all of those are great kind of summer crops and then headed into fall you can again do a lot of the same type of lettuce greens lettuces and things like that here in the south like that slightly cooler temperature so doing a round of lettuce again, but for the most part, people kind of start gearing up for winter here in the fall. So you can plant your collards and turnips and cabbages. You can get a couple of succession of cabbages in. If you're a kale person, that's the time of year to do it as well. Radicchio, I, I think I mentioned before, all of those real fancy kind of microgreen type things grow really well in the fall. So you can get a good harvest out of those before the freeze. Knowing your frost date is a huge one for fall and winter crops. The coal crops, all of the cabbages and the kales and collards and all those things, they will transition from fall into winter beautifully. Those tender things like the lettuce and the radicchio's and stuff like that is pretty staunchly prior to frost. The frost will start to damage those. You get into winter and you kind of get all of those great greens. Fall and spring, you can do carrots again, um, especially if you want just baby carrots. Turning from winter into spring, I always plant potatoes around Valentine's Day. You can do a fall crop of potatoes if you can get your hands on them here in the South. You can do them September, October when it really starts to cool down and dig those and then plant another crop of them again in February. So lots of stuff you can do. Don't be afraid of potatoes. I know I haven't mentioned those before, but You can do potatoes in containers as well. Don't let those scare you if you only have a little bit of patio space.
0: Yeah, those are really easy to harvest, especially sweet potatoes. I've done that before.
1: Oh, yeah. Sweet potato foliage is beautiful, too. They have ornamental sweet potatoes out, so their foliage is really beautiful. And then being able to to harvest those out of containers is super easy in early fall.
0: We know that seasonality on certain plants is important. Are there any other keywords that we should be looking out for?
1: If you're looking at packets or you're looking at plants, Things like patio. There's a whole series of stuff out right now that really literally has patio written either on the pot or on the tag. Those are meant to stay a little bit smaller. Whether you're doing square foot gardening or raised beds or containers, finding something that says patio. Pixie is another one or tiny. You see baby out there, and that one can be a little tricky. you know, if you're talking about a baby watermelon, well, the vine is still going to be twenty feet long, but the watermelon's going to be little. So that one can be a little bit tricky, but you also see midget or dwarf, those types of words looking at how big that plant's going to get, but all of those words will lead you in the right direction of something that's going to stay a little bit smaller. Another thing that I haven't mentioned yet is also mixing flowers in with all of this. The key to success in vegetable gardening is having pollination and attracting the bees to your garden. So I always mix in Flowers with either my containers or with my vegetable gardens. I think it's always a good idea just as a giant beacon, come over here and pollinate my stuff.
0: What flowers have you had the most success attracting beneficial insects?
1: I go with sentimental flowers. My grandparents were big gardeners. My parents were big gardeners. My grandmother's favorite flower to plant is zinnia, so I always plant some zinnias with mine, and she was a big fan of cosmos, which I am as well. Those are easy, but anything that looks kind of like a sunflower. Sunflowers are great if you really like sunflowers. Anything that has a daisy type flower, that group of plants attracts the most beneficial insects as well as bees. Can't go wrong with something that kind of looks like a daisy in your garden.
0: And I know some of the soils that you buy for containers, they say they have fertilizer in them. How important is supplementing fertilizer in containers or in your raised beds or in the soil? What type of fertilizers do you like to use?
1: Yeah, potting medias in particular have gotten really good at kind of adding a starter fertilizer to the mix. And I really like those because I do think that it gets the seeds and the plant off to a good start. My discussions of fertilizers, it really kind of comes down to do you want to go organic or are you okay not going organic? Most people I tend to find with vegetable gardening kind of want to go the organic route. And there's a lot of good products on the market right now for that. One of my favorites, but my husband's least favorite, is garden tone or veggie tone. It has a very distinct smell. It is organic, but you do have to be prepared for the smell. And you kind of just top dress that and lightly sprinkle it around the soil, around the vegetables, whether that be in a container or a raised bed. If you are in an apartment or a high rise situation, be prepared for your neighbors to reach out to you on what that smell might be. There are a lot of other good products out there, too blood meal and bone meal, which are granular that you sprinkle on, but you can opt for liquid fertilizers too. So as you're mixing up a watering can of stuff, you just look for a great organic liquid fertilizer. The difference between those, the liquid fertilizer is going to be a little bit more immediately available. The granular stuff's going to take a little bit longer to dissipate. Either way, I highly recommend fertilizing vegetables. You get a lot with your soil, you get a lot with the water, but fertilization is really, you know, a lot of people take vitamins every day, or you try to make sure that you eat healthy to be able to get all of those vitamins and nutrients that you need. It's no different. You're doing the exact same thing for the plants. And when they're spending all of their energy producing these beautiful fruits and vegetables for you, they just kind of need some of that supplemental help to continue producing and staying healthy.
0: Should we expect to have a pest challenge
1: i always expect pest challenges (laughs) (laughs) i've been gardening too long to know better and you know what it's okay it's gonna happen cooler crops, you're always going to have aphids. They hang out under your leaves. Squash vine borer will eventually find its way to your garden, and you'll notice your plants are wilty no matter if the watering's perfect, but you look down and you kind of see a little bit of a hole in the stem, and it's going to happen. By and large, if you're really switching out your plant and the seasonality and kind of bagging them or composting them correctly, you're not going to have a huge issue, especially if you're planting flowers with it and you're able to attract beneficial insects to help Offset some of that pest presence that's there. What I will say is, you might have some presence of pests there, but if you keep your plants healthy, they're much less likely to have an issue with pests than if you're neglecting them or they don't have enough fertilization or enough water and they're stressed out. Those stress signals attract pests and they're going to come flock to those plants if they're stressed out. Keeping the plants healthy really helps cut down on the pests no matter what.
0: What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden?
1: They just wouldn't be afraid to try new things. If you see stuff in the grocery store and find that you like it or you're interested in it, well, look it up and try it. I will say with gardening, there is also some small rules to keep in mind. You don't want to plant potatoes in the exact same place that you have just planted tomatoes. Looking into the seasonality and the crop rotation, especially if you're getting into vegetables, will help you with your success. By and large, I just think if you like it, if it looks interesting, try it. You never know till you try it. And when you're growing it yourself, it's going to taste much different. I also challenge people that if you've said, I don't like squash, grow it yourself and see, do you really not like squash or do you really not like what you have been able to find in the store until now?
0: Yeah, I do that with one of my daughters. She doesn't like tomatoes. And I think it's because she never really has eaten a peek from the vine. A good one. tomato. A good one. Yeah.
1: Totally. Totally. Totally different. I'm not down in grocery stores by any stretch. Gives you everything you want at your fingertips. Tomatoes is definitely one of those that's very, very, very disappointing. If you just get a beautiful red globe that has zero flavor, you grow your own, you'll never be in that boat.
0: Yeah, especially if you remember those tomato sandwiches you had back in the summers when you were a kid.
1: Ooh. Yeah. White bread, mayonnaise, tomato. That's all you need. Yep. I can eat those every day.
0: That's right. I even had a party one time and that's all we had was tomato sandwiches. It was a tomato sandwich party.
1: That's my kind of party right there. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. If you have kids, my daughter has grown up being able to go out into our front yard and pick cherry tomatoes whenever she wants. And she loves cherry tomatoes. Getting kids into it, it's amazing what they will eat when they see it growing and they're able to get their hands on it and help. My son, not a huge vegetable eater, loves salad because he loves going out and helping harvest the lettuce. Getting the kids involved really opens their eyes to different things and how things taste differently when you're growing it too.
0: I know with at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, y'all really get kids Involved with your kids' garden, but you've also got edible gardens there too. Can you talk a little bit about those and the Atlanta Botanical Garden?
1: Yes, absolutely. We do have two opportunities for seeing edible gardening, both with opportunities for kids. Our children's garden has a vegetable area, and in that area, we really try to do things that are really recognizable to families. You'll go in and you'll instantly really be able to recognize what those vegetables and herbs and, and fruits are that are growing there. Kids get to help. So if you're here between ten and two, we have a horticulturist up there, and you're welcome to help her in the garden and even maybe do some harvesting and things like that. We really want kids to get hands-on and know the plants and what they smell like. There's nothing that can substitute for kids being able to get dirty. I love kids getting dirty. Other option is our edible garden, which is kind of part of our main garden, not up in our children's garden, and that's the garden where we really try to display how beautiful vegetables and edibles can be. We do container gardening there. We do in ground, we do raised beds, we do a little bit of all of it, lots of different options, but also vegetables or herbs or edibles that you may not have heard of things that are important in different parts of the world. We try to incorporate theirs it really kind of expands the mind and expands the palate. But we also offer a series of camps here. And if your child loves cooking or loves eating, we have a whole series of chef camps where kids can come in and we harvest for that. Kids can cook something every single day. Those are very, very popular. We have science camps that we offer here for kids so they can come in and they quite frequently utilize the edible areas, learning lots of different things about plants and fruits and the the science behind it and bugs and all that fun stuff. We have cooking demonstrations on the weekend, so you can come in and staff chefs will be cooking things that you're able to sample. We have lots of opportunities. And beyond that, you know, especially if you live in an urban area or if you live in Atlanta or another major metropolitan, you don't always get the chance to see what different plants and edibles look like as they're growing. We're very familiar with what they look like on a store shelf, but you don't know what they look like growing. And there's a lot to be said for being able to see how that grows before it hits your plate or where it comes from. We put a lot of information out there about where things come from and are they really important in other parts of the world. We also have a sign here that shows different major crops and the seasonality of it here in Georgia. Recipes, we put tons of recipes out there. We have a great uh, celebration that just happened not too long ago, the refugee recipe (laughs) celebration where different nationalities from around the world shared their recipes as well. We try to have a lot of fun with edibles here and do a lot of education.
0: That's like a lot of fun. I know there's a lot of other things to see at the gardens. What else have you got?
1: Oh yeah, edible garden and children's garden are just a small portion of it. Children's garden, I'll circle back around to. We have the edible garden portion but it is a garden filled with discovery, things to do, something new or fun or cool around every corner. Lots of cool plants up there. I'm a plant geek. Working on the planting plan for that one, it was really fun. A lot of beneficial insect attracting plants up there. Butterflies, things like that. Around the garden, Garden. In the main part of the garden, we have all kinds of stuff to see, something for everybody. We have big display gardens with large annual displays, rose garden, cactus and succulent garden, conservation display garden, which displays the types of plants our conservation department works with. But since their work is mainly off site, we showcase those native plants here at the garden in a particular garden space. We have woodland gardens, camellia garden we really try to hit all the highlights. We have a plant collections policy that kind of guides what plants we do and don't grow here. And we have specific collections of things and some of those big ones that people will be very familiar with are maples, magnolias, native rhododendrons. the native azaleas are about to go into bloom here, hydrangeas, lots of trees, lots of shrubs on display here for people to see.
0: What else is going on in the garden?
1: I would also say we put a lot, a lot of stuff out there on our website, but very particularly on social media. So if people want to kind of keep up with us, and keep up with what we're doing and different opportunities, they should definitely tune in to our social media outlet. We put out their videos on what's going on over here or plant care videos. We do also teach a series of classes. So if people are really interested in this, we do teach vegetable gardening and vegetable container gardening so they can come take a class with us. Just coming in, enjoying it and gathering ideas, tuning into the social media, they're going to get a lot from us.
0: What is your earliest garden memory?
1: Oh, my goodness. I grew up on a farm, so it was pretty intrinsic to the way I grew up. So I grew up on a farm. Um, It was my grandparents' farm that I also grew up on, and we grew beef cows. We also grew a huge garden. My grandparents were big gardeners. My dad was a huge gardener. My dad would grow it and pick it, and I was telling someone recently, in the evenings when you would sit down after homework, when I was growing up, you only had one TV, so everybody would sit down and watch TV together, but you were never idle. You were snapping beans or shelling beans or cracking pecans, or you were doing something because there was always something to be done because we grew a substantial amount of our own food. Also, my dad had a soft spot for flowers. He would bring home lots of flowers we would plant out in front of our house. I was outside all the time when I was growing up, and my mom later told me, she didn't tell me this before I went to college, but she later told me, she said, I could not imagine what you were going to do as your profession in your life (laughs) because you were never inside. And then one day you told me you were going to switch over to horticulture. And she said, you told me what it was. And she was like, of course, that's what you're going to do because you're outside and you get to deal with plants all the time. And that's just what I've always loved to do.
0: Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession?
1: The one thing that my parents really stressed to me was pick something to do in your life that you love. That's so true. And I wish I could tell that to everyone. And I do. All the young people that I can talk to, I say, just pick something you love to do. And when I went into college, I picked botany, knowing that it was a plant-based major. But then when I got into it, I realized that it's a little bit more at the cellular level. A lot of botanists and biologists work, you know, with microscopes and labs and really trying to figure out how plants work, which is super interesting. And the part of me still really is interested in that what I really wanted to do was get dirty. I wanted to get down and dirty with plants. And I wanted to know about plants and all the plants that I see around me and what are they. And, you know, there's plants all over the world and they're still discovering them every day. That gets more into the horticultural side of things. And that's really what I figured out that I love to do. And that's why I made that switch pretty quickly was the hands-on handling plants every day is what horticulture does.
0: Do you have a funny plant story for us or a garden story?
1: This still makes me chuckle even today. When I started here at the garden, I was fresh out of school. I graduated UGA, Dugarean Horticulture. The next month started here at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. I walk around with my boss and he gives me my first set of gardens to take care of. The different gardens that are here are assigned to different people. Walking around, showing me all the different gardens that I have to take care of. And the very last one that he takes me to is our cactus and succulent garden. Distinctly remember looking at that garden and not only was it the cactus and succulent garden but it was a garden that had been kind of off display for a while for the construction of our orchid center we put display labels on things so people know what they are and those display labels were just kind of strewn across the garden was a little bit disheveled a little bit unkempt we were getting ready to reopen that part of the garden he's introducing this garden to me and i'm looking at this a native georgia girl who just graduated from the university of georgia i was like they do not teach these plants at georgia (laughs) I never once had an ID course on anything that had to do with the succulent. So <laughs> that was a real life moment of welcome to work. And I got to teach myself an entire set of plants to get this garden back up and running for public <laughs> viewing real quick.
0: Did you ever get a chance to meet Dr. Gordon Bear?
1: You know, I barely missed him. So many of our cactus and succulents came from him. And I started here at the garden when he was quite elderly, and I never got the chance to meet him. But I have handled countless ones of His plant. Everything I know about him, he was a pretty phenomenal person.
0: Yeah, he's actually my neighbor.
1: Oh, cool.
0: When I had a garden center, he would bring plants up for me to sell at the garden center on consignment.
1: Inevitably, really, really cool succulents of some description.
0: Yeah, he would be telling me about it and it'd just be totally over my head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I have read his name many, many, many times and teaching myself that set of plants.
0: In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer?
1: Oh, God. You know, our. director of horticulture here at the Atlanta location for many years was Mildred Folkley. She's still with us. She is the director of our Gainesville garden. Her plant knowledge and having worked for her for so many years and how I just picked up so much from her and I think it's pretty phenomenal. Took classes from Dr. Durr and Dr. Armitage and some of the legends and it's hard to not come away from being taught with such phenomenal plant people and just not still be in awe of their excitement, enthusiasm and knowledge this many years later.
0: What is your most valuable garden mistake?
1: Ooh, valuable garden mistake. I may have killed more plants than some people have grown.
0: You're not gardening unless uh. you're killing plants, right? <laughs>
1: I was just about to say, you're not gardening until you're killing plants. Figuring things out, I will say it's taken me many, many years to figure out if I really want to grow something that's a little bit more unusual, take the time to learn about the plant first. Plants are very much individuals. They come from a place. They come from a soil. They come from an environment. Learning about that first has helped me become a much more successful gardener and what I like growing. Even down to some things that we take for granted, gardens that you see around here, it still helps to know where these plants are from and what those conditions are to increase that success and the beauty of that plant.
0: What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture?
1: Conservation biological controls. That term I was not familiar with until recently, although I figured out much to my joy that I have been doing that for most of my gardening professional and unprofessional gardening careers. Seeing that term come to life and how much interest it is in it now, where we're welcoming in the ecosystem of how things work into our gardens and facilitating that, attracting beneficial insects to kill the, the quote unquote bad insects or having a threshold of those bad insects, understanding that caterpillars are going to eat down our fennel every year and things like that. To me, that's been really exciting to kind of see the formation of that concept become a little bit more formalized and what it is and how many people are interested in it really excites me.
0: I'd like for you to complete this statement in my garden. I have.
1: My garden at home is a relatively new garden. We just moved a couple of years ago and I brought nothing with me. So, in my garden right now, I have the plants that I have missed from my previous gardens. That's where I've started. What have I thought about and what have I decided I really can't live without? That's where I've started with my garden at home.
0: Well, what are they? <laughs> You can't leave us hanging.
1: (laughs) It's funny because I immediately out of the gate started with vegetable gardening. Um, I planted fruit trees and I I made my husband plow up a, a much too large garden plot and all of our neighbors very well fed out of. So I started there. And in the ornamental realm, hydrangea snowflake, I really missed that from our previous house. A beautiful dissected Japanese maple. I have, of course, an agave from my acquired taste of succulents, I should say. Those are big ones. And, you know, and I've I've ventured into some other stuff recently. I did add a couple of hydrangeas and I was very reluctant on roses, but I really figured out there was a rose that I really loved and missed. And then some old-fashioned pass-along plants from both my parents' garden and my in-law's garden. gotten cuttings and divisions of some of those because I do think that having such deep gardening and farming roots on both sides of our family is really important to me to represent in our garden. So I have good old hibiscus, a couple of different kinds from my mother-in-law and camellia from my parents' house, things like that.
0: Yeah, plant a whole memory. See a certain plant, it reminds you of a certain time.
1: Exactly. I have a picture in my house of my grandparents sitting in front of their vegetable garden, which is lined at their fence with zinnias and reminds me of that picture every time I walk out to my vegetable garden. And my daughter every year helps me plant zinnias and it just brings it all together to me. It's such a happy thought and memory.
0: What are you applying to your garden this year that you learned last year?
1: Well, it wasn't that I learned last year. I was still building my in-ground vegetable garden. Weeds are your number one nemesis. Vegetable garden like mine. Back around to the good old tried and true method of weed suppression with newspapers and hay. Probably within the next weekend or two, I'll be getting my beds ready.
0: Do you have an all-time favorite plant?
1: That's a hard one for a professional horticulturist. My goodness. All-time favorite plant. Gosh, I'd probably have to break it down by type.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Give us a couple.
1: (laughs) Gosh, with bulbs, I was recently dealing with rain lilies. That's actually one of my favorite bulbs of all time. I've been talking about zinnias. I actually do think as far as annual concerns, zinnias are a favorite. They have such great memories for me and good old hibiscus good old-fashioned style hibiscus those also have a pretty special place in my heart big pink flowers you really can't beat it as far as something like quintessentially southern and in so many of our older relatives gardens that one has a good memory for me as well as far as trees i love white oak the stature of the tree the shaggy looking bark the shape of the leaf as far as oaks are concerned or even hardwood trees in general a white oak i will take over almost any of them my favorite tree here at the garden is probably our most iconic tree, which is our dawn redwood, which is right outside of our edible garden. You know, the teardrop shape all the way down to the, the story of that's a plant that was thought to be extinct up until the 50s or 60s when it was found in a remote area on a mountainside in China. It shows you the resiliency and and the, the beauty and the wonder of the plant world. Every time I think I learned a new plant that can't top the next one, I learn about another one or a plant thought to be extinct and then they find it somewhere and it's just the plant world world never ceases to amaze me.
0: Amanda, tell us how people may connect with you.
1: Absolutely. The Atlanta Botanical Garden has a large presence on both Facebook and Instagram. We also do Twitter, but you can mainly find us on Facebook and Instagram, Atlanta Botanical Garden. We also have our website, atlantabg.org.
0: This has been Episode 51, Growing Vegetables and Herbs in Containers with Amanda Bennett. Thank you, Amanda. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time